Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Investing from A to Z podcast. I'm your host, Steph Boldrini. This podcast is for everyone who wants to be part of our real estate family and learn commercial real estate investing from A to Z. I'll be sharing with you tips for real estate investing while being mentored by a few people with several years of experience so that you and I can make the least amount of mistakes as possible and succeed a lot faster. My goal is to keep things very straightforward because I value your time and you are here to learn. With that, in the last episode, we learned what are experienced investors dealing with, how they are approaching it, and the strategies that they are using during this period. And in this episode, we are interviewing Russell Gray. He is the co-host of the Real Estate Guys radio show. Russ is a wealth of information and a financial strategist with a background in financial services dating back to 1986. He also thought real estate finance to realtors pursuing the GRI designation. This interview has a ton of very valuable information and I am splitting it into two episodes because I want you to really absorb what Russ is sharing with us as some of his strategies are really important to be mindful of. Here we go. Russ, it's such a privilege to have you here today. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. But first, for the very few people who might not know who you are, why don't you start by sharing a little bit about you? Well, I'm the co-host of the Real Estate Guys radio show. I think that's how most people know me. been doing that since 2004. Can't believe it's been that long. Uh, my partner, Robert Helm, started the show in 1997, and I started out like a lot of people just as a listener. And then I went to an event, got to know him, found a way to get engaged with him. Back then I was in the mortgage business and I was in that business up till about 2008. Then of course the whole mortgage industry imploded, took my business with it, took my portfolio, most of my portfolio with it. And uh, from there I kind of went on a quest to figure out how could so many smart people who appeared to be wealthy, including myself, uh, wake up one day and be completely broke and completely wiped out and have never even seen it coming. And so the last 10 years of my career has really been about studying the way financial markets work, trying to understand how to put the macro into the micro, you know, because real estate investors tend to be pretty myopic. You know, they're very deal focused. They focus on transactions and neighborhoods and they go from deal to deal to deal. Whereas, you know, you listen to the people on financial media, financial news, they're always talking about what's going on at a 100,000 foot view and these big ebbs and flows of financial markets. And I think for most Main Street investors, you listen to that and go, well, that really doesn't affect me except for maybe interest rates. When you go through what we're going through right now, I think you begin to realize there is a connection. And if this is anything like 2008, and I think there's an argument to be made that it's actually going to be worse which means on the flip side, it's actually going to be better. So it's not all doom and gloom, but you just have to be real. I think that, you know, right now there's a, a lot of reason to be paying attention. Absolutely. 
And because you guys have been around for a while, I would love to hear your thoughts on what you are seeing is happening right now in commercial real estate. And I'm with you in, in terms of, I think it'll be worse than 08, but I would also love to hear your thoughts there. Well, you know, when it comes to commercial, I think when, when, when most people think about real estate, you know, the rank and file person out there who gets interested, they think about flip this house, they think about residential housing, maybe they think, you know, apartment buildings. And from a lending perspective, even apartment buildings, multi-unit residential is still considered commercial. But, you know, when people really think about commercial real estate investing, you're talking industrial, office, big buildings. And that's an industry that is really, I think, in flux right now. You've had all this WeWork, which kind of rolled onto the scene with a fairly unique business model. I'm not exactly sure how they passed themselves off as being a tech company, but they were basically leasing long and renting short. And I think one of the cardinal rules in any form of investing is never borrow short and invest long. So uh, I think that that business model was a bit of a challenge. But even more traditional models like retail we're starting to get affected by technology, you know, what they call the Amazon effect. I think most people are familiar with that. So on, on one side of the commercial real estate ledger, you had retail spaces under tremendous distress because they're retail customers, the demographic they served, companies like JCPenney, whose business models were being completely disrupted. These anchor tenants like Sears and Kmart. Uh, just getting wiped out by people ordering online. On the flip side of that, on the industrial side, you saw warehouse and distribution and logistics just going through the, the roof. And, and so there's always going to be winners and losers. In this current environment, you've got a, a lot of people changing the way they behave. Uh, companies are finding out that they can have a remote workforce and actually get things done. They may decide, hey, we don't need all this fancy office space. People would prefer to live at home uh, or work at home. So maybe we're going to cut back. I think that if you're in the office space, you need to really look at the nature of the work that the companies are doing. And does it require physical proximity and collaboration? Or is it something that could be moved uh, to a, a more diverse workforce, people working at home? You could be vulnerable. You know, you look at in residential assisted living or assisted living, I'm sorry, that you on the commercial side, you have the big boxers where you've got 100, 200 people all in the same building, uh, especially a high risk demographic in the age of COVID-19. Those spaces and those business models are a little bit under attack right now. And on the other side of that, you have uh, what our friend Gene Garino does, which is residential assisted living in, in houses where you take these McMansions and turn them into units that hold, you know, somewhere between eight and maybe 12 to 15 people. You still have care and economies of scale, but you also have community and a sense of home. It had some advantages even before all this came up. But now, now, I mean, given the choice, you've got to put mom or dad someplace, uh, you might prefer to put them in a smaller facility rather than a larger one uh, just to mitigate the risk of exposure. So I think anybody who's in the commercial space just really has to think about, like any real estate investor, about their markets. And when I say market, I, I don't just mean geographies, although geographies can be impacted, but I mean uh, demographics, the people that actually you serve, uh, who pay the rent, 
or the customers of the people who pay the rent, and then also the product niche itself, because some niches are going to be winners and others are going to be losers. So even in the realm of commercial real estate, which is a niche of real estate, there's still a bunch of sub-niches under that. And you just can't throw them all in a blender and say that they're all the same because they're not. And why do you think this will be worse than 2008? Well, I mean, when you look at what happened in 2008, it had its genesis in the subprime market. And you had a small percentage of subprime borrowers, which made up a small percentage of the overall mortgage market that got those 228 loans where they got a two-year teaser rate and they were qualified and a lot of times not really well qualified because that was the era of liar loans, you know, no income, no assets, no verification. And so these people would go in with no down payment and really no income and not qualified. And they were, they were using their ability to obtain a loan with weak underwriting as a way to control a property and speculate on the upward price. Well, when the price didn't continue to go up, selling out on the back end for a capital gain went away. When that 228 adjusted, they couldn't make the payment. And now all of a sudden, these AAA rated mortgage-backed securities that have been sold off you know, by Wall Street to unsuspecting investors uh, started to underperform which meant that they had to be revalued. And this is really what a lot of people don't understand about the way all this money that makes to, makes it to Main Street, where, where it comes into existence. But what happens, because I was in the mortgage business, what happens is, you know, the, the, the loan officer, the mortgage originator, the company that's out there writing the loans, typically aren't funding out of their own uh, money. Normally, what they're doing is they're funding out of a warehouse line of credit, like a giant HELOC. And they fund the loan, they get a whole bunch of them, they package them all up, and then they sell those loans, uh, they securitize those loans, they put them together in a mortgage-backed security and sell them off to Wall Street and Wall Street investors who purchase the streams of income. But they have to perform at a certain level, and you can imagine, based on the small interest rates, it doesn't take too many defaults before those things aren't performing very well. And so... That, that's part of the food chain. Then once they get to Wall Street, those bonds become assets to the people who've invested in them and they leverage them the same way somebody might margin their stock. So if you've got stocks in your stock account, you may decide to head off and decide you want to raise some money, but you don't want to sell the upside of your stock. So you hold on to the stock, but you borrow against it. You pledge it as collateral. Well, unlike real estate, where if the price goes down, the property value goes down, you don't have to make up the difference or restore the original LTV, loan to value. Anybody who's ever margined stocks knows that that's exactly what happens. So if you margin the stock and the stock goes down, then you have to either bring cash or sell the stock to restore your leverage. It's called a margin call. And that happens to individual investors and it happens to big institutional investors. And so that's what happened in 2008. These, these mortgage-backed securities started to go bad or at least lose value. And they had been collateralized. They had been rehypothecated. And so now you've got people out there getting margin calls. And when you get a margin call, you have to sell everything or anything to raise cash to make that call. And the problem is, is when the mortgages are going bad, nobody wants to buy them. Now you're in free fall. When any asset goes no bid, the price is basically zero. 
And the Federal Reserve had to step in and print hundreds of billions of dollars, which was a lot of money back then, to buy these things up under their uh, toxic asset relief program between them and the Treasury. They, they bought up all these, these toxic assets, and the Fed's balance sheet ballooned from $800 billion at the beginning of the 2008 crisis to about $4.5 trillion before they started to try to wind it down. And they got it down to, I think, about three point seven which started to create a recession. They had to back up. They had to lower interest rates. And then COVID-19 hit. Mm-hmm. And now the, now, now the Fed balance sheet is over $7 trillion. It's nearly double just in the four months that we've had COVID-19. So on the one hand, you've got the powers that be, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury, way in front of the crisis, as opposed to 2008, where they were way behind. That's the good news. The bad news is... This is so much bigger because it isn't just a small percentage of subprime borrowers that are having a hard time making payments. You have major corporations like Hertz, companies that have been in business for 100 years that are declaring bankruptcy. And the the quote in the article that I just, just read, in fact, I featured it in today's newsletter, is no business is structured for zero revenue. So what, what we've got is a health crisis that turned into a economic crisis, which means that we shut the economy down. It's like having a giant heart attack. And if you can imagine currency, money, um, currency stop like blood stops flowing because the heart stops beating, the economic heartbeat stops beating, the blood stops flowing, then you know individual cells, people, and organizations or organs, they all start to die. And if you don't get the heart started quickly and get the blood flowing quickly, then you get permanent damage. And it remains to be seen if that's going to happen. But when those payments stop being made, then the debt goes bad. And now we're right back where we were at 2008, but much, much bigger. And the problem is everything we did wrong leading into 2008 with the margin and the the rehypothesis of the debt in Wall Street, we've done worse. The derivatives are worse today. Global debt is worse today than it was in 2008. And the cessation of payments and the defaults and the bad debt out there is much bigger. So just based on that alone, it says this is probably going to be worse. The difference is, you know, like I said, the Fed and which makes monetary policy, lowering interest rates and printing bunches of money, and the U.S. government, which makes fiscal policy, the spending of gobs of money, which they're doing, um, they're way in front of it. So if does that mean that, that the dollar, who's having to really suck up all of this because all these dollars are being printed at some point, could, could have a consequence, a dollar crisis? If people lose faith in the dollar globally, if the dollar ceases to be the world's reserve currency, now we go from health crisis to economic crisis to financial system crisis where credit markets and banks fail uh, to a dollar crisis. And the entire burden of saving this whole thing right now is squarely on the shoulders of the dollar. And so time will tell if the dollar is strong enough to handle the burden. And I think that what most Americans aren't prepared for uh, is what would happen to them and all their dollar-denominated earnings uh, and assets 
if the dollar were to fail. For the rest of the world, it would be difficult if the dollar failed, but they're used to other currencies that aren't the world's reserve currency. But Americans, Americans only know the U.S. dollar, and they think the whole world revolves around the U.S. dollar. And if the dollar changes, if the dollar goes bad, uh, then, then Americans' portfolios probably aren't ready for what happens. So I think that's something people really need to start to study and pay attention to. I know I am. Thank you. I really appreciate you going into the details of how the trickle-down effects are going to potentially affect the economy in a huge scale. We will continue this interview next week and learn how can investors prepare to ride this downturn and what asset classes could be interesting to invest in over the next several months. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at montecarlorei.com. All of the links for this interview and our newsletter will be under show notes and I will see you next time.